Welcome to Grow My Business or Sell It, the podcast that helps entrepreneurs in three ways. How to grow your business in the most cost-effective way, how to sell it for as much money as possible, and how to invest the proceeds of all that hard work. Whichever stage you're at, listen up, because I guarantee you'll take something valuable from every episode. Hello and welcome back. Today, my guest is one of the most sought-after business coaches in the UK. His grown-up business system is designed to help founders and family-owned businesses to scale for a successful exit. He's coached over 550 entrepreneurs through the system, with many clients selling their businesses for life-changing sums. His mastermind groups quickly fill up, with most members renewing year after year, and he also runs scale-up boot camps to help business owners think bigger and put the right building blocks in place for growth and to develop the resilience we all need if we're going to survive and thrive on the entrepreneur journey. His name is Paul Avens. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Graham. It's a privilege to be here. Well, I tell you what, talking of, of resilience on the entrepreneur journey, uh, your journey hasn't been that easy, has it? I mean, t- just tell us about the events of 2014 and how you've had to kind of bounce back from them. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting because resilience is um, something that I think most of us don't think about when we go into the journey of starting a business. You know, it's easy to fall for the, well, we buy into the belief that it's going to be a lot easier than it is. Otherwise, we'd never do it. I think that's true. But yeah, in 2014, um, I had uh, what uh, what I would lovingly refer to as um, a massive piece of feedback about how I was running my life and my business at the time, um, which may resulted uh, just just for context. That summer, I just had a business that had gone into administration, so there was a huge amount of stress running around. Um, it was the first time I'd ever had a business that had gone into administration um, in my career, so I, you know, a massive learning curve, massive amount of stress. There was all kinds of things going on at the time um, that were not healthy um, for me, and uh, you know, I'll take full responsibility for this. I hadn't been looking after my body and my health either during that journey. So one of the things I think that we can do as entrepreneurs sometimes is we sacrifice short-term health uh, in pursuing wealth, right? We, we make that trade-off. We go, well, let's okay, I can fix that later. And, and I've definitely done that. Um, and as somebody who uh, suffered with asthma for all of my life since I was seven, um, I'd progressively let that get worse and not looked after it. Uh, and it culminated with um, on bank holiday. It was bank holiday Sunday, uh, two thousand and you know well, it was eight years ago. Now coming up on eight years ago, um, the uh, the stress kind of got the better of me. Um, and uh, all things considered, I ended up having a serious asthma attack. And that serious asthma attack resulted in me having a full blown cardiac arrest at home at the age of forty two. Um, and uh, literally thinking my life was over. I was pretty sure that was it. I was sure I was done. I was sure I was going to check out at forty two, and that was when my my clock ran out. Uh, and, uh, you know, what was really sort of horrific at the time for me was that that happened in front of my wife, Sue, and in front of my, my son, Jonathan, um, which obviously became a very life-shaping experience for him. Um, and if it wasn't for an amazing team of paramedics who arrived literally as I went into cardiac arrest and refused to give up for four and a half minutes, given that six minutes is brain damage and, you know, you go on this journey of different colors. So you start out blue, you, you sort of go blue, white, purple, and purple is the last color you go before you go black and black is it, game over. And I got to purple, which tells you how serious it was. Um, I jokingly say that, you know, at least if I was going to die, I was on brand because I've got a whole thing about being purple. But um, it literally, I mean, for my wife to see me get to that stage and that color meant that it was very close. It was 90 seconds from, from being 
it finished. So yeah, I, I, and that was feedback for me. And it was very much because I'd built, I'd built, you know, when, when the paramedic got me back and I, I remember coming back around and being fully conscious and probably throwing up on him, uh, to which he was really excited about, because that meant I'd lived and they don't, they save less than, less than two to 3% of people at, survive at home heart attacks, especially under 45. It's pretty fatal. If you're under 45, they, they don't get to you in time. So I was very, very lucky, hugely lucky, and I'm massively grateful for that every single day. And um, for me, from from my learning from that was that actually, do you know what? That I've got two choices here. I can either wake up and go, I'm going to just carry on doing what I was doing, or I can turn around and go, I'm going to completely change the way I run my life and my businesses, and you know, and I'm going to do what I call the shift from me to we thinking. And it had been very much about me. And, you know, I'd, I'd been the engine. I'd been the person driving it. I'd been the the person responsible. I was going to make it happen. You know, that whole kind of you know. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm just. I'm going to go out there and, and you know make it happen. And and actually, what, what I realised was that was actually setting me up for a massive failure. And the first thing I needed to do was to figure out how to build teams and start to change as a leader and, and shift from me to we. It's not about me anymore. It's about we. So how do we do this? How do we build a team? And how do we build a company and a culture that isn't isn't driven by me? It's driven by everybody. Um, and that became my mission and my passion to not only learn it for me, but to teach it to other people because I wanted to stop other entrepreneurs having the what I call the hit the wall moment, which we have at different times. And it can be financial, it can be emotional, it can be relationship wise. If you look at the divorce rates for entrepreneurs, they're, they're, they're the highest of any profession. Um, and it's because quite often we're, we're so focused on one thing and one goal that we neglect other things in the process um, and figure out that, well, we'll fix that and clean that up later. And the reality is that that's not my definition of success. I don't think that's what success looks like. I don't think just tracking one metric, be it financial, um, is the only metric. And, it, and it's a dangerous metric if that's the only one you're running. Absolutely. But I mean, uh, you know, clearly in terms of refocusing, I mean, you were obviously already you know, pretty successful at that time, but then you had this massive life-changing event that's kind of caused you to reassess. I suppose you could argue that, over the last couple of years, quite a few people, as, as we've gone through all the various pandemic restrictions and so on, that's given people cause to have a, a you know reflect and think about their own circumstances. I mean, ha- have you seen from from you know the many entrepreneurs that you work with? Have you seen a bit of a change and a bit of a desire to get somewhat a more balanced uh, life? Do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, so we do, we sort of survey all of our clients and ask, well, what's the things you're most passionate about? Why did you go into business? Uh, in the first place like what what made you do this um, and the data is really interesting actually because people come back and say actually the number one reason I went to business for myself was freedom I actually wanted to have more control of my life and my time and what I did with it and how I set my life up that was the first thing that was a reason why I did it number two was to spend more time with my family that always comes in, in in the top three number three is usually the financial upside and rewards which is different to what the media will tell you entrepreneurs are in it for or entrepreneurs are doing things for right and the one that's that we're seeing come up the ranks actually year on year or near more and more and more is about look i want to leave a legacy i want i want to do something that's more about contributing just to playing a bigger game than it is just about making money and and i often say Part of my job is to help clients solve the two biggest pressures that stop them playing a big, big game. And that, that is the first pressure is the financial one. Like I've got to make enough money to pay my bills, to support my family, to make sure I'm secure, to take that pressure off. When you remove that that sort of monthly pressure point for entrepreneurs, they suddenly go, oh, wait, okay, I can, do, I can play a much bigger game now because the money one's fixed. And the second one is the, is the time one, is to help them get back time so that they've got the the... the 
the space to play that bigger game, to think, to build relationships, to do things that will make a, you know, create that legacy. But you cannot do that if you're in, you know, that that head down, grind it out mentality that, that you can't play those kind of games when you're in that survival mode. So, you know, for me, it's always about going right over the next 12 to 24 months. We want to get you out of trading time for money. We want to get you building a team. We want to get clarity on the strategy, get you really solid, consistent cash flow um, and give you the space and the time to go right now. What's the bigger game? What, what am I here to do? Really? What's my legacy? What, what, what am I trying to do in my life? Um, and that for me was a question that came up absolutely once, you know, once I came out and back out of the hospital a week later and, and it was much more about, look, I get a better, I get a second chance. Not everybody does. Um, my life has got to mean more than just a, you know, the amount of money that you make. And it's got to be about contribution. It's got to be about the difference uh, that we can make in this world, right? And the, the problems we can help solve. Yeah, and I think this is one of the areas where I, I sometimes get on my high horse that, that, that we as, as, as a breed are somewhat underappreciated by society. So, so for example, I, I live in Portugal, as you know, and last weekend in Lisbon, there were anti-capitalist demonstrations, you know, with people, you know, going on about how these greedy capitalists are destroying the world. Well, you know, the reality is, you know, now more than ever, we need business owners who are going to make these sacrifices and commitments to grow and create wealth, create jobs, you know, pay taxes that support the hospitals, et cetera. And yet, you know, we, we don't seem to get a, a fair rap in society for the contribution we actually make. No, I mean, I think that's been true throughout the whole of human history, though. That's that's not just, you know, you can go back um, centuries and that's always been the case, right? So there's always a question that people, people misunderstand what, what wealth, what creates wealth and wealth is adding value and solving a bigger problem, right? So Elon Musk is particularly wealthy. Why? Because he's created brands that have solved enormously big problems, right? And and he's added a massive amount of value to, in, if you look at SpaceX, he's solved a massive issue with that, taking the cost of space flight and making it reusable, the rockets reusable. That solves a massive issue for, for who? For the government. So suddenly, you know, he gets the flow of that, that contribution. He gets the flow. Same with the electric cars, you know, changing the way the world thought about that and, uh, if that it was even possible so guess what he, he ends up creating a company that's worth billions well he created value in the world for an awful lot of people and that's the, the way it flows back it you know the reason why people i think get angry about success or people who've achieved it is because you never see the struggle you don't see you don't see the years and years and, and, and what i call the blood sweat and years that are put into to getting people to be success you don't see you know, Elon doing seven days a week, 23 hours a day. The, the, you, don't, you don't see that. You see the end result and therefore people go, oh, well, that's not fair that he's got that and you've got, I've got this. Well, okay, but how, you know, how, how much money have you sunk into your education or how many risks have you taken or, you know, how, how many hours do you work? Do you sacrifice? Do you make, do you pay the price? Are you, are you prepared to do that for 25 years without a guarantee that it will come off, right? And therefore, you know, it's that whole paradigm of people would like it to be easy and want to believe that it's easy for people who've got to that point. And, you know, for me, I'll tell you a quick story. So I used to run a a networking club called um, the Business Wealth Club. And um, we had uh, multiple locations around the country. And and at one point, um, I won't say where in the country it was, but uh, we were launching a club and the mentor that was running that invited the local MP to come and, and, and you know, speak to the business owners and, and network with business owners in his community who were creating jobs and value. And um, he told the, the coach, the mentor, that 
under no circumstances would he attend and no and under no circumstances did he support an organization that was in favor of um, helping people become wealthy that was not what those were not what the country needed and it wasn't what you know and I was just like well that's an interesting perspective and given that it was, by the way this was a conservative MP just to be clear um, but his whole point of view was like we shouldn't be talking about wealth and I'm like well wealth isn't just money right wealth is time wealth is freedom wealth is choices wealth is your health the wealth if you you know I'm a big fan of think and grow rich um, study it read it on a regular basis and money is the 10th rich in think and grow rich um, mindset is the first wealth that's having the right mindset and so I think I think too much is um, distorted by the perception of what the media tells everybody about entrepreneurs' life and how easy it is and how it's great when you've got loads of money. I, I, I can point you at people, and I'm sure you can too, who've got loads of money and are still miserable. It, it, mindset is still it's still the choice. The choices that we have is the first and fundamental, you know, most important for me. The wealth and and when you lose your health, and I very much you know, nearly lost my health, and my wife got sick the following year. You know, you realize and you appreciate that actually it's the things that you can't buy that other are most valuable, but you normally don't find that out until you're losing them or you're at risk at losing at losing them. Um, but I, I mean, this has been the thing through history, though. Anytime there's a disproportionate, um, when wealth gets concentrated in too few hands, as tends to happen during times of massive uh, economic change or upheaval or technology change or revolution. This is this has happened throughout history, and then there's you know when the ba- the ratio gets out of whack, then then yeah there is there is a massive uprising against the masses about this is now not fair because too much is in too few hands. That that's gone on. You can go back you know hundreds of years and, and go back thousands of years, and that's happened before. So this is not new. Um, this is you know the, people would rather blame somebody else than go my life isn't the way I want it to be and what am I going to do about it? They'd rather blame somebody else. Yeah, so and, you blame. And I think the, the, the uh, I, I think part of that is the entrepreneur journey can be a lonely one because people even in your own friends and family circle don't understand. And that's why belonging to groups, belonging to masterminds, belonging to uh, larger organizations where you can meet with like-minded entrepreneurs is, is almost, I think, a, a vital part of the journey because, you know, you have to, you know, you, you have to realize you're not alone and you're not the only one that's going through this. No, you're, you're spot on. And I think, uh, I think it's, I think it's lonely, but it's, it's, it's not just that it's, um, who do you celebrate with? So if you're an entrepreneur, who do you celebrate with? So let's just say you have a fantastic quarter, you, you know, you make the record amount of money. Um, not that that's the only measure, but let's just use it as this example. You know, you, you land a really big couple of contracts and, and you're super excited and, you know, you're on for a cracking quarter. You're going to make six figures a month or whatever. You, you can't you can't go to your mates who are on jobs at 40, 50, 60,000 a year and go, look, I'm just, I'm crushing it this quarter. I'm going to make a quarter of a million. It's like, because they're going to look at you like, you know, just, it just doesn't work, right? They don't understand. And they've not seen you in the months when you were losing money every month and, and worrying about how you're going to pay the salaries and, and borrowing money on credit cards at, at 20% to pay salaries and all of the stuff that we do for the times when it goes great. And it's like, well, who do you, you need to be in a room where people go, do you know what you can celebrate in this room? Because we get it. We get the struggle. We get the sacrifice. And we, and we understand it. And we want to celebrate that. And there's, there are le- you, we are a minority. Like, it was, you know, we are a minority. Like entrepreneurs building businesses are a minority compared to the vast majority who are employed. And 
Therefore, it's difficult. Who do you talk to? And who do you talk to about if you're worried about stuff? That's the other thing. It's like if you're genuinely worried about how do you pay salary and payroll, you can't tell your team. They, they don't because they, they, they'd all be like, well, oh, I didn't realize it was that like that. I'll leave. So it's like, you've got to find a group of people, that paid or otherwise, right, that you can be around and be vulnerable and be honest about and go, look, I'm struggling with this. What do you think? And somebody will go, oh, yeah, I've been there. I've done that. I've been through this. This is how I dealt with it. Or I've got this issue. How do you deal with it with a team? Or I've got... I've got a client of mine that's, that's not paying their bills and is, you know, what do I do with that? It's just, you know, that whole thing of like, you're not going on this journey on your own because there is a path and it is known. And if, if you've never traveled it before, it feels very confusing and very hard. But if you go, oh, someone else has been on this path before, they're further down the road, they can tell me what the, the terrain looks like, they can tell me what, you know, don't turn left at that junction, make sure you turn right. If somebody else can guide you on that. And, and that just takes some of the constant state of fear. I, I often talk about, <laughs> I've used this analogy and I don't know if, tell me if it resonates but I, I say there's there's two different sides of things and there's a challenge for most business owners is they're living their business life like the business has got them held hostage and what I mean by that is that they don't have an exit that what I call a get out date they don't have a clear get out date they don't know how they're going to get out and then one day they wake up and they're just trapped and the business has held them, held them hostage and they can't get out of it because they need the cash or they need the money and they don't know what else to do and, and they're trapped and there's that terrible sinking feeling that I, I am I'm, I have no idea how to get out of this now I, I don't I'm trapped and I say if you look at the data about people who go to prison and people who go to host, uh, get taken hostage you know even if it's a short period of time that you're taken hostage it's emotionally exhausting because you constantly live in fear all the time of, and I think that's what happens to a lot of business owners is we live in this state of fear of like I don't know how long it's going to last I don't know where the next sale's coming from I don't know if I'm going to be able you know and, and that where wears you out and burns you out it did for me and when you get to a point of clarity about right this is my plan this is the exit date this is how I'm going to scale to get to this point you know I'm going to scale it to sell it and that's my journey and I've and I know if I've got three years of hard work and then I'm done or four years of hard work and I'm out I can I can tolerate the short-term pain because I understand that this isn't going to last forever and I think that that's the difference I think if the business is taking you hostage it's a terrifying and an exhausting place to live. Yeah, and, and, and I think uh, I think exit strategy is a, a key part of this. But, you know, w- one of the things also, I think people can sometimes get trapped in a business that's just doing okay. They're, they're, they're able to, you know, it's turning over, I don't know, 500, 750. They're taking maybe a six-figure income from it. Um, and they get sort of into a bit of a, a rut, a bit of a plateau. Uh, when you come across businesses like that, you know, if they've at least got the mindset where they're thinking they want to grow, what are the sort of key areas that you, you look at in terms of what they've got to change to start getting some growth into that business? Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's a point just before that, which is firstly, there's nothing wrong with having a business that pays you six figures a year and does 500,000 or 700,000. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And and if that's your vision and your and what you want to do with your life, good for you. Like genuinely, congratulations, right? You're making six figures. Just have a plan about where you're going to invest it and understand that that's a lifestyle business, but you're going to use it to take the cash and invest it in other things. Nothing wrong with that. right? As a strategy, if that's your plan, great. You've got a plan. That's that's fantastic. If you really want to scale the business, though, and, and, and go on that journey where you're going to take it to two to three million, you've got to realize that actually it starts with getting a clear strategy, number one. Second is it's about having the right talent and the team around you to take you to get it there with you because you don't do that on your own. And then third, it's about understanding the cash and, and the cash you're going to need in the business to make that happen, um, whether it, you know, and how you're going to raise it and also how you're going to drive the, the, the sales engine, as we talk about it, the, the business engine, um, to actually attract more clients 
at higher margins to generate the the profitability that you want to hit that exit number. So, you know, for me, there's the interesting thing is quite often people come to me and say, I want to scale my business and I'll sit down and go, why? And they'll go, well, because, because I, because I think I should. And I'm like, well, that's not going to sustain you as a reason. There's got to be a compelling reason why you want to do it. And is there a market opportunity that can actually support the, the size you want to grow to? Um, and is there somebody who we can position this to sell to? And the most important thing I say to all the clients is, listen, when you're building it, you have to build it knowing who you're selling it to at the end of it, if that's the goal. If that's the goal, some people, it's just to have a three million pound business making, you know, six, seven hundred thousand a year profit run by a team and having freedom. And they want the freedom and the financial benefits of running that kind of business. Fabulous. Good. Right. For other people, they want to sell that business to their team. And that's their that's their get out strategy. But it, it goes back to the key thing of knowing what the end destination looks like and then and then getting really clear about what's the strategy that gets us there, who do we need on the team, and what financial resources and cash are we going to need to make that a reality because growth sucks cash. So you're going to need to understand and be clear on how much cash you're going to need to go the distance. Um, otherwise, you get caught in no man's land where you run out of money halfway through the scale-up journey and it, and it gets ugly in a hurry. Right. So so I guess the starting point for that must be to understand whether the fundamental business model is scalable and then wh- what, what right. your approach to that is going to be because – uh, you know, some businesses can scale just kind of organically by getting more and more customers every week, every month. Others, they try and uh, basically go and acquire a competitor or maybe a complementary business to make the the whole greater than the sum of the parts. I mean, what, what's been your experience of those kind of different approaches to growth? Yeah, so so I've got, so, so to give you some context for this, so I've got two different masterminds that focus on these two areas. So the F12 mastermind that I run is all about organic growth. It's about how do you take a business from one to three million in two years and, and create a high value, you know, lots of shareholder value. So seven figure shareholder value and a team that's running the business with, yeah, you know, the entrepreneur not needing to be there day to day. That That's what that journey looks like. And it's a fairly well-known roadmap now. It's 24 months, depending on where you're coming in at. But typically it's about that kind of journey, 36 most, at the most. Um, and you're going to get to a point, you know, if you follow that plan of, of working through that organically. And you're going to get very good at acquiring customers because that's a key part of the strategy, but also maximizing margin and shareholder value on the back end. Um, but there's a point at which, yeah, and we call it the the scale-up ceiling, or that's the way I refer to it now. You hit a scale-up ceiling where you cannot grow organically um, fast enough to get through the next gap, which is really around the kind of 5 to 10 million mark. Um, and so for some businesses, it's 3 to 7 million is, is the stretch. But you, you reach a point when you realize you just can't fund growth organically quickly enough. So then the logical way to do it is to, is to jump and use an acquisition strategy where instead of buying one customer at a time, you're buying a business with 200, 300, 400, 500 customers at a time, and you're buying team at the same time, and you're buying distribution. So, you know, you suddenly you go, and I'm, I'll give you a great example of a client of mine, um, did for four years in F12, uh, went into Inner Circle two years ago, um, and is a four uh, just is a four million pound business now. So just had a million pound quarter, um, and now he's just acquired his first business. But that's another two and a half million pound business. So that business is going to go from four to six and a half million in in literally one month. Um, and what's really interesting is just by doing that gave them a different geographical presence, and they they've doubled the amount of um, uh, bigger inquiries that they're getting. The the, the, the size of the inquiries is nearly doubled um, in terms of average order value, but also the kind of customers they're attracting because they're seen as a multi-site operation. 
Um, and that business, you know, that will be a seven, 7.5 million pound business this year. And there's another acquisition on the table to take them to 10. So, you know, that's a 20 year old business that took 20 years to get, you know, coaching from me for four years um, to get it to four million. But the reality is it's taken 20 years from startup to that point, And it will literally in the space of 18 months um, go from four million to 10 million. And you look at that from an exit perspective and you go, wow, that's that's you've just saved years of that journey. Um, in terms of trying to do that organically, you couldn't grow that fast organically. You just couldn't yeah. do it. So th- there is that point where you go, look, I've, I've got it to it. But this is the key thing, I think, Graham, that most people, are, I'm seeing this a lot in terms of mistakes people are making. They're trying to do acquisitions before they've got their core business really stable and really solid. Um, and they don't have the right team in now and they're trying to stick an acquisition on top and then it all comes tumbling down and they don't understand why. And it's like, well, you didn't have a core business. You didn't have a core team. It wasn't stable and it wasn't financially robust. So you couldn't step away and do an acquisition. Um, so I've seen that a couple of times when people have come to me and gone, I'm in trouble. I did this acquisition. What do you suggest? And I was like, you did the acquisition too early. You weren't ready for it. You, you weren't stable enough. You didn't have the foundations built out well enough to do it. Um, so I think that's a key thing. You've got to have that that run rate. You've got to have cash in the bank. You've got to be in a, in, a, in a place where you've got a really good team. That means you can go and focus on the integration of the acquisition because um, it will take a, 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 there is a distraction price for doing it. And you need to know that somebody's running the cool business without you needing to Absolutely. be Absolutely. And I mean, we see you know, really among some of the mega mergers that go on, there are all kinds of challenges. You're clashing two different cultures together. You've got two management teams and you've also got, I guess, you know, if you're the one trying to acquire the other business, you know, they may have spent 20 years building that. So it's their baby. And now you're kind of trying to fold that into your business. So there's all kinds of issues that come up there. There's psychological ones, financial ones. Do these guys still have a job? Do you get rid of the old owners when you take them on? I mean, you know, I guess you must come across a lot of those issues as you help people through this acquisition journey. Yeah, I mean, I think... The challenge for most business owners when they sell a business is it's usually their baby and they've had it for 20, 25 years, right? So it's, it's their, it's their, they were massively emotionally invested in it and it's actually become a large part of their identity. So now you're trying to separate buying the business and the owner suddenly realizing they don't have an identity or they don't have a clear vision of what they're going to do next. That's the most important thing. If you're trying to buy a business of somebody who hasn't got a clear vision of what their life's going to be like afterwards, they're always going to default back to, I don't want to lose this business because it's who I am at some point. So, you know, the, the deal that a client of mine's just done, it took nine months of back and forth and negotiation and, and emotional roller coaster riding with the owner before we got it over the line. It was a nine month journey. Um, and yeah, because most people only sell their business once, they this is their one in their head. This is the mindset I've come across is this is my one shot. This is it. You know, this is my one shot to cash out and make the money I need to retire. And, and this is my one shot. And therefore, people get very nervous about it. They get very protective, rightly so, of the asset they built. But they get, they get because it's the only time they've done it, um, they don't know what they don't know. They aren't aware of the process. There's a massive educational learning curve you've got to take people on to do that. Um, whereas if there's someone who's sold two or three businesses, it's actually an easy because it's just it's the next transaction for them in the journey. But if it's their lifelong work, then they're going to care a lot, and rightly so, about the team that gets left, what happens to them, 
um, about the brand that they built, all of those kind of things. They're going to care about all of those. And, and what does that um, mean so, from, from a you know a financial point of view? If you're the one that's trying to acquire them, um, getting yeah. from that mindset to a fair valuation and and to how, you know, how much upfront versus deferred consideration and so on. Um, you know, yes. how, how, what sort of challenges do you see there in terms of actually finding a, a, a workable deal for both parties? Um, I think. From my perspective, uh, everybody who's selling the business would love to come away from the first negotiation going, yes, I'm going to get all the cash up front on day one. That'll be amazing. The reality is that very few deals get done like that. Um, so you have to kind of work with that level of, okay, here's here's what your dream outcome is. Here's what's the expectation. Here's the reality of what's possible. Um, and for most people, uh, every deal I've seen go over the line in the last two years, everybody has been paid um, money on on completion day because I think if you don't get money on completion day then nobody's going to sell nowadays it's like look, I need to walk away with some cash on day one so that I feel like I, I got cash and then there's a percentage whether that's 50% or 60% that's a de- deferred consideration over a period of time um, but yeah so for me it's always that that's a tricky negotiation because there's the you know, on the one side, you've got the people, the person selling the business who would like to get as much money on, as possible on day one. And on, on the other side, you've usually got the person buying the business who would rather put more onto the deferred consideration so that the business can grow and fund the acquisition itself as a strategy. And somewhere in the middle, those two need to meet in a way that everybody can feel like, yeah, we can work with that number. Um, that's what usually takes the time to get to that point. Now, the reality is that most entrepreneurs, if you talk to them, have a number that they would like to walk away with as a minimum um, that would change their life. And if you can get close to that, then it's a lot easier to do the deal. Um, I'm, I'm not a fan of no money down deals and stuff like that because I just think it, 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 it genuinely doesn't end up working long term, in my experience anyway, unless the business is in a real in a really bad situation somebody just wants to get out and sell it for a pound but yeah you're not looking i'm not looking to buy businesses like that i'm not looking to have clients buy businesses like that i'm, I'm i always think it's a lot easier to buy something that's successful profitable and, and then you're going to go in and keep it and grow it and and the legacy of that entrepreneur is going to outlast them you, you you can tell that narrative it becomes a really compelling story for the person that's selling it it's like okay great i want to see my business carry on i want to see the people here looked after i want to see somebody progress this. I don't just want it to end. And, and when it comes to funding those kind of acquisitions, I mean, there's a range of approaches. Obviously, there can be retained profit in the business. There can be, uh, mm-hmm. you can issue new equity. You can uh, take on some kind of debt. So, for example, at, at Beaufort Society, we've helped companies with raising equity or through loan notes. What, what kind of approaches have you seen entrepreneurs using to fund these acquisitions? I mean, there's a lot of really interesting creative things, uh, tools out there now that you can access. Obviously, there's asset finance. That's one of the best. You know, if if some if there's a business with machinery or capital, you can you can raise money against the assets. Um, obviously, if it's property, then you know you can pretend, that's a great way to raise money potentially against the mortgage remortgage property or come up with a property deal if there's a property deal that's included inside the business. Um, I've just had a client of mine who acquired a business and we were able to actually do cash flow lending against the business's turnover for the previous last last two years. So um, we actually raised 30%. Uh, we did a deal where essentially we raised 30% um, of the turnover of the last year as a loan uh, to fund the acquisition. That was quite a nice little, little sort of deal. We raised 300K on a million pound turnover um, and that enabled us to, to buy. To, we bought the business and then refin- and did that finance deal. So we were able to borrow some, then priorly borrow some money for a, a month to fund it essentially and then refinance it out that way. 
um, which is a nice, nice little, nice way to do that acquisition piece. Um, so yeah, there, there are some really interesting things out there, and, and I think there are also some really great investors out there who are understanding this world more and more. Who go, well, okay, great, I'll come in, I'll lend you some capital to get it over the line, and then I'm quite happy to take an equity or a longer term payback if I can see the scale plan in here. Um, so I think I think now's a great time to do this. I mean, you and I have talked about how many business owners are retiring or hitting retirement age in the next 10 years. And you're going to find an enormous amount of businesses that are really, really solidly good businesses that could be could be potential bolt-ons for something you're already doing. But again, it goes back to the whole thing, Graham. You've got to be clear on what your strategy is. Otherwise, it's just a deal as opposed to something that uh, forwards the end game. Yeah, and, and I think that, that, that brings me on to, I think, a really key point in terms of maximizing the value of the exits. You, t- you talked earlier on about you know, almost right up front with your strategy, you start thinking about who you're going to sell to. What are the sorts of things you advise business owners to do in order to kind of groom the business for sale and prepare it and you know, get that maximum earnings multiple at the end of the day? Yeah, I mean... So I'll tell you. I'll tell you one of the things that will block the sale uh, more often than not is that if you haven't got a decent team in, because if you're seen as, you know, there are seven different things that will tend to impact the the valuation of the business, right? And one is if if decisions that all have to go through you, that's going to reduce the value. Um, if you've got uh, customers that are over thirty percent of your turnover, that's going to decrease the value because the risk profile goes up. Um, if you've got one or two suppliers or one main supplier or one main market, that's going to reduce again reduce the value of the business because of the risk profile. Um, and the other the other one for me is if there isn't a continuity cash flow model. So one of the things I always work with under the money piece of my formula under the cash piece is look at where in the business is there a, a continuity product or program um, or service. Uh, and if there isn't one, how can we introduce one so that we get a more consistent cash flow, but also we'll get a much higher multiple on exit. So this is where it's about strategy, talent and cash. So the cash is about how do we not just maximize for profit, but also build, uh, you know, build out continuity income um, and also build out IP, uh, which creates massive value on the balance sheet. So we're looking at, at those kind of things rather than just a multiple of profit. So um, obviously SaaS companies, software as a service are great um, in, in terms of that in turn, but there's lots of ways we put continuity programs into clients over the years in terms of turning one sale into 12 sales a year, um, which builds really great balance sheet value for that from that perspective. And if you get the right team in and you get the right tech in and somebody can look at the business and go, look, I can buy that business and I can buy it as an investment because I don't have to be there, I don't have to run it, then you're going to get a higher multiple as well. But the other thing that's not talked about very often um, is find somebody who has strategic, that you for whom you operate as strategic value, not just um, transactional value. And what, what I mean by that is, uh, I'll give you an example, right? So I've had two clients who've got significant valuations, like seven figures, uh, one well over a million five, that the deal got done in the middle of COVID um, because the, the corporate that wanted to buy them wanted to buy them for geographical reasons. They wanted to get into that market in that area and it was cheaper to buy them than go in and set up on their own. And there was a reason that this corporate wanted to, to, um, to make announcements to the media about that they were now in these areas. So now doing that deal... Um, became a lot easier because my client was offering them strategic value um, by, as opposed to just the P&L value, right? So there, there was strategic value they were delivering. I've got another client of mine, again, there's a corporate consolidation play going on in his market. And in this corporate wants to go to the city and float. They want to, they're looking to float and, and therefore 
they're buying businesses that mean they get a much higher multiple when they go to when they go to the city. So suddenly he's got he's strategically valuable um, to that to that goal that they're trying to pursue, rather than just somebody buying the business because of what the PL looks like um, for the last three years. So th- there's multiple ways to look at it. But honestly, I, I've had two clients where I've said, right, do you know who you would sell to in an ideal world? Write down. And most people know that it's two or three people that you know, it's usually an industry sale or a trade sale or someone else in the market who isn't in your territory who'd like to be in your area. And you say, okay, great. So um, go take them out for lunch and sit down and say, listen, I'd like to ask you a question. Um, if I was to put my business up for sale in two or three years, what would it need to look like for you to be interested in buying it? And I've had two clients do that and they've come, they've literally come back from that lunch and gone, I have got a shopping list <laughs> from this company have basically told me what their business needs to look like for them to want to buy it in two years or three years' time. They've literally told them. They said, well, if it, if it was making this much money and it was turning over this much and you had, you know, this much on continuity programs or and, you know, this was this was what you had. So, like, you had um, this many uh, this many rooms in the business. In one case, it was like, well, if you go from three rooms to five rooms um, in this particular uh, practice, uh, that it would be more valuable. So, suddenly, we came back and we were able to build a blueprint very quickly about, right, okay, so in the next two years, we need to expand the business in this direction. We need to move into new premises that would hit the criteria because we can't expand the premises we've got. Um, you know, and we were able to work out a, a really clear roadmap and strategy based on what they told us they would they would buy in two or three years' time. Now, whether we ever whether we sell to them exactly or whether we end up going back to them and to others in the market, we know that that's what the market's going to want to buy in two or three years' time. We know what it looks like. That is so now it's like so that, that, and, so powerful. And yet yeah, I wonder how few business owners would even think of that of going to what you could may, maybe argue is deemed a competitor and saying, "What would I need to do to my business to make it into something you would pay me a, a lot of money for?" I mean, it's 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 simple but powerful. I know, but it, people get hung up when they go, oh, I can't possibly go and ask them that question. They're a competitor of mine. What if they, they're going to think I'm up for sale? I said, well, everyone's up for sale, right? It's just, it just depends when and the number. I said, but if you went and said to them, listen, I think I'd, my my business could be strategically valuable for you. You're not in this area. You, you don't, you know, you'd like to move into a national play or you'd like to move into the southeast or the southwest or the northeast, whatever it is. Um, and you said, well, I would be a, a really good strategic acquisition for you in two or three years' time, but I appreciate I'm not there yet. So what does it need to look like for you to consider it in two or three years' time? And because it's a future-based question, because it's not a do you want to buy me now question, people are much more open to talking about it. And say, well, look, two or three years' time, if you look like this, we'd probably be interested. And you'll come away with a list that will give you clarity. And then every decision um, that you make goes through that lens. So... Um, I had, uh, I had a really amazing speaker who uh, spoke to uh, my retreat in uh, Spain. We take, take everybody to Spain for a four-day retreat once a year. And, and I had a speaker come in, Terry, amazing guy, came in and, and spoke about a business he built and sold uh, to Thomas Cook and uh, how he built it. And once he knew who he was going to sell it to, every single decision about all the products that he put through his um, uh, travel agents on the high street was completely changed once he knew who was going to buy the business at the end. Because he would like, they're only going to buy it if the products look like this, if we're doing this kind of holidays, if we have this kind of conversion rate. He knew everything they would want. And then he spent two years, three years building that out and taking it from nine stores to, I think it was, I don't know, nearly 100 or something. I forget the math exactly, but something like that. And and then turning around and literally going to the, the board and saying, right, look, we're going to go up for sale. We're a perfect fit for you. Um, do you want to put a bid in? And then looking at it going, yeah, you're right. We, you are a perfect fit for us. It's exactly what we would want to acquire. 
and it, it, but that's for most people that's not their mindset their mindset is if i could just make enough money to survive i'll be and that i'll be all right and i'm like well it's not a lot of extra work to actually build something that's got shareholder value in that somebody else might want to acquire perfect okay well let's talk about the other side of that kind of dream transaction you know there's a there's a new kind of uh, therapist now around that help people deal with what's called sudden wealth syndrome which is kind of like <laughs> lottery winners or, or people who've sold their business like that so you know I, 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 when people have sold a business they've got the big you know checks gone at the bank uh generally what have you seen them do next and and what do you advise them to do next uh i advise them not to do anything for about six months in terms of like the worst thing you can do is suddenly go and spend and that's from personal experience i've made that mistake um you know i think you have to go okay great you've just you've just finished a major chapter in your life you're not actually in the best space mentally to know what you really want at this point you have to allow that 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 to, to kind of cathartically work through you got to work through that period right um, unless you've got another vehicle that you're already building and you're like, well, I'm, I'm just going to now put all my attention into this other vehicle. That, that's happened on a couple of occasions um, where people have gone, great, now I'm out of that. I can I can actually take this other vehicle, put some extra cash into it and, and drive it even harder. But if, you, if you're walking away from something and you've got nothing else that you're actively going into, I think you want to take the, the next six months to get educated, to go and learn about your options for investing, to go and learn about property, to go you know, and, and learn about investing in other companies. And I think you use that time to get educated and to find what kind of vehicles you're interested in in, in, in being involved with going forward from there. Um, I think you've got to take responsibility for your own wealth management, right? I mean, it, you can, it's not something you can outsource. Um, I think getting education about what your options are at that point and figuring out what the next stage of your journey is going to be about and what's going to you know, fulfill you and give you that sense of purpose again. Yeah, I know, because it's, it's quite interesting. We have, we have quite a few um, entrepreneurs in the Beaufort Society who've sold their business, and uh, th their mindset initially is, that's kind of my problems are over. Uh, and one of the things they eventually come around to is actually, well, you've just got a new set of problems now. You've got to work out what you're going to do with this, how you're going to make it last, how you're going to pass it on to the children, etc. So it's a, it's a fascinating, a nice problem to have, but still, uh, still something that needs to be addressed. But... Um, I think that's an illusion, though, don't you? I think I think there's an illusion we like to tell ourselves. If I hit a certain, you know, I had Nick, a speaker, come talk to us, and he said, well, "What's your life changing number?" And everyone in the room wrote down a number, and he said, "Well, okay, great. If you had that number, how would your life change?" And I, and I think, yes, your life would change. There's a number for all of us that if we had that happen in our or our business, or you know, we came into that amount of money our lives would change. Actually, our lives would just be different. We would have different puzzles. I talk about puzzles, not problems, because problems are negative and tend to overwhelm people where puzzles have a solution and your brain goes to work to find the pieces you need to solve the puzzle. And, and I think once you get a certain amount of liquidity in your life, financial liquidity, there's two, two or three things. I think, number one, you have a responsibility to do something with that to, to solve a puzzle in the world that really matters to you. I mean, we feed, you know, I feed 10,000 kids a year and we're building a school in Africa this year. You know, and it's about, this is, the game is not just about how much money you can make and how many houses you can have. Yeah, there's a point, but it, after a while, that just, it, it actually becomes a lot of complexity. I've had clients of mine who've, who've gone and had three or four properties and gone, actually, this has become too complex because this is now becoming a real pain to manage all of this. Um, so actually, you know, sometimes it's about going, where in your life is it becoming too complex and how do I simplify it so I can have a bigger impact? I think that's the question. I think there's a point where resources allow you to solve a large amount of friction points, but actually what they also do is create a whole bunch of questions you didn't know you needed to answer. 
And I think that's 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 what's interesting. I often talk about new level, new devil. And I think every time you go to a new level in your life, you, you realize there's a whole bunch of subconscious stuff that's going to come back out. And there's a whole bunch of limiting beliefs or imposter syndrome that will come hurtling back towards you. Um, and stuff, you know, and you and I have both seen it where people make a lot of money and suddenly they, they don't know what to do with it. And, and then all their inner demons come out. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. And, <laughs> and, and I, I think, you know, <laughs> philanthropy is, and, and legacy are things that need to be part of the plan just as much as growing and selling a business. You know, it's almost like the next progression, isn't it? So that, you know, you're assuming you achieve your objective, you've grown the business, you've sold it for a decent amount, you've built a sensible, diversified investment portfolio, you still need a reason to get out of bed in the morning. And I tell you what, I, I meet now that I'm down here in the Algarve, I meet a lot of previously very successful people who frankly are bored shitless on the golf course and, and wondering what to do with their lives, you know. So sometimes the so-called dream, you know, isn't quite what you think it's going to be if you haven't got those next steps to to go on to once you've built and sold the business. Yeah, I, I mean, I think people, I think I think there's a difference. I think there are certain, certain people who sell a business because they got to be in the right time and the right place. There's nothing wrong with that. And that ha- I've seen that happen. And they were, they were what I would call artists. So maybe they were a chiropractor or a dentist or, a, you know, they're an artist. They're really good at what they do, but they're not an entrepreneur. They're not building multiple businesses or scaling multiple businesses or moving between different industries or seeing opportunities that, that, that in a market where they can go in and create something that can add a lot of value or solve a major problem. They're, they're very good business people, right? They're very good business people. But that's different. And they, they they build a really successful business and it ticks all the financial boxes and it gives them a great family life. And then they get to a point where they go, I'm 65. I don't want to do that. I don't want to work that hard anymore. And I want to cash out and take the chips off the table. Right. Good decision. Right, do that. Take the chips off the table with the maximum value you can. And then great. Enjoy your retirement. Fantastic. But I think if you're there's a certain type of person that I've worked with who, and I would class myself as this. Someone said this on, to me on a podcast, like, when are you going to retire? And I said, I'm never going to retire. Because um, retirement to me is admitting that I've got nothing else to give to the world and I've got, I can't make a difference to anyone's life and there's nothing I can do to help anybody. And I'm like, I, I want to keep playing the game. I enjoy the game. It's not, it's not the, you know, the score's going to go up and down at different times of your life. And I've been, I know I've had times when I've you know, been up and then I've had times when I've been like absolutely down with not very much at all in terms of money in the bank or scores or any of those things. And it's like, but it's the game. It's like the game is with yourself to see, you know, at what point can you outperform your personal best or what's the next, what's the next thing you can take and blow up and, and challenge yourself from a skill perspective. You know, I, I bought um, a video, a video production company in December because I'm a big believer in the future of video. If you're not using video in your marketing, like you, you are not relevant. There's 82% of all the traffic on the internet goes to video. If you don't have videos on your blogs and you're not on platforms like YouTube and TikTok, you will not be relevant um, in the next five years. Now, that's just fact, in my opinion, that all the data says that's the case. So I'm like, well, okay, I believe that's a big enough issue. I want to go and build a video production company that solves the pain for most entrepreneurs of how do we create video? What if we create a brand that solves that problem for entrepreneurs? And it's like, that's a game. That's okay, okay great. So like buy a company that's got great people, but you know, doesn't know how to scale and then bring the scale skills that I've got and then grow that. And, you know, we've already first called, first two quarters of this year, we've already like doubled the business since I bought it. But it's like, yeah, but now we're solving a real problem that people get. And it's like, well, that's a game, isn't it? This, it's, this is the game. It's like, you know, wh- and what do I need to learn? Because there's a whole bunch I don't know about video that I needed to learn and study about to, to, to play that game. And it's, uh, for me, that's the, that's the game, Graham. It's like, where have you got to keep growing? 
because you're either growing or you're dying and you're either relevant or becoming irrelevant. So how do you stay relevant in a world that's constantly changing is something I always sit there and ask that question. It's like, what do I need to learn now to, to stay being relevant to my clients and to stay adding value? It's just uh, that's that's the game. Okay. That, that's the well. Game. I mean, you've certainly added plenty of value during our call, and as, as we come to the the end of our time <laughs> together, I, I just want to try and put you on the spot. I know there's so much we could talk about, but if you had to distill perhaps three key lessons for entrepreneurs looking to either grow or sell their business, what what would you narrow it down to as three key messages to leave people with, Paul? I, I, number one, number one for me is get really clear on your va- uh, vision vision and your values like what is your vision and what are the values and then you'll attract people to your team who share that share want to be a part of creating the vision the bigger the vision the better the talent you attract so number one get really clear on the vision and the values that matter to you and then only work with people who are aligned to your values that'd be number one number two um you've got to really realize that your number one goal as an entrepreneur is, is to make sure that you never run out of cash um, that you you know on the jet growth sucks cash whatever cash you think you need if you're going to scale your business you're going to need more than you think and that that's a skill set of being able to know when to raise money and when to you know how to leverage debt or making sure that you never run out of cash is a critical skill set um, and it's part of a successful entrepreneur journey in terms of scale up and then I suppose for me the other one would be um, in terms of in terms of a, a key message was like make decisions from the future not from the present and what i mean by that is think about the business that you're you know building for three or four years and and then go okay great if that was already done what would i have already what would i have already put in place what investments would i have made with the team who would i have recruited and hire people earlier than you think you need them and that would be my other big takeaway it's like that every client i've coached when we've gone out and got somebody who is the right person but was maybe three to six months earlier everybody's agreed that it was the best thing we did to bring them in earlier than we thought we needed them because of the value they were able to add and and those you know that, that your ability to attract and retain talent is going to be a critical skill on your journey to scale up so um you know that's why i've, I've got tools that help clients solve that that particular puzzle but yeah for me understand that never run out of cash <laughs> make sure you've got a clear, clear strategy um, in terms of your vision and it's, it's backed by clear vision and, and values and, and then understand how to attract and retain talent because team building is a skill set that can be learnt and nobody does it on their own fantastic okay well if, if people want to learn a bit more about paul avens what, what's the best place for them to go and find out more about you paul um, so a couple of places, really. Number one, you can go to paulavians.com. Um, there's a bunch of free resources on there. There's videos that you can consume and watch. Um, there's also my uh, scale-up scorecard. So if you're interested to find out, uh, take 12 questions and find out how ready is your business to scale up, or um, you can take that, uh, scaleupscorecard.co.uk um, in terms of that. Um, or you can do my scale-up masterclass, which I've got, which is a free training on how to scale up your business, the five steps I take clients through which is at scaleupmasterclass.co.uk. So um, that or connect with me on LinkedIn. To be honest with you, I post pretty much most days on LinkedIn. I'm really active on there. So um, yeah, I always love to connect with entrepreneurs and, and add value through that platform. So find me on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Well, thanks for all the value you've added today. And and, and you know, good luck with the entrepreneurs you're working with on, on their journey to, to grow and sell their businesses. Paul Avins, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Graham. I appreciate it. If you'd like to suggest topics for future episodes, appear as a guest on the show, or invite me onto your podcast, you can get me on graham at grahamrowan.com. 
Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time on Grow My Business or Sell It.